Welcome to the Gren Zone. Dissecting dermatology differently. Here is your host, Dr. Logan Kolb. Welcome back. I hope you're all having a great day and it's only going to get better because today we'll be learning the dermatology exam. Since this content applies to the everyday practice of seeing derm patients, it is important to start forming good habits for doing a thorough dermatologic H&P. In this episode, we will also discuss how to describe rashes and lesions, which is a crucial skill to develop in order to communicate with other providers and develop a differential diagnosis. I want to start with a quick story on the importance of all this stuff. When I was on auditions as a medical student, I was told to see a patient and present it. The patient was being treated for acne, but also mentioned a rash on his back. I looked at it and thought it had the look of tinea versicolor, so I presented it to the attending as such. He saw it and said, Ha ha ha, I know what this is. I gave it more thought and described it in my head. Scaly papules that are almost in a reticular pattern and becoming confluent. And then I had this aha moment and realized it was a condition called CARP, which stands for Confluent and Reticulated Papillomatosis. It was a condition I had never seen before in person, but I could diagnose based on the description. So, I got some brownie points with my attending that day, who also happens to be my program director now. So it is my hope that this info in this podcast today will help you succeed and do the same. Before we get into the meat of this episode, I have to mention our disclaimer. This episode is meant for educational and informational purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Nor does this episode represent the views of Orange Park Medical Center, Olmstead Medical Center, or their affiliates. So let's start with categorizing lesions into primary lesions, which are unmodified, and secondary lesions, which are changed by things like scratching or trauma. Starting with primary lesions, we have flat lesions, which are either macules that are less than one centimeter, or patches, which are greater than one centimeter. An example of a macule is a freckle, whereas you could have a patch of vitiligo. If you closed your eyes and ran your finger over the lesion in a non-creepy way, you would not be able to tell that the lesion was there. But then we have the raised lesions, which are called papules when they're less than one centimeter, plaques when they're flat-topped and greater than one centimeter, or nodules, which are rounded and greater than one centimeter, just like plaques. None of these three raised lesions have visible fluid, and they are known as being papulosquamous when they have visible scale. A rash with a mix of macules and papules is known as a morbilliform rash. When you see a morbilliform rash, think bug and drug, with bugs referring to viral exanthems and drug obviously referring to drug rashes. Next, we have fluid-filled lesions, with a vesicle being less than one centimeter and a bulla being larger at greater than one centimeter. An example of a vesicle could be shingles, whereas bulla are seen in bullus pemphigoid. A question you may get asked is, Here's an easy one, although I don't imagine anything's easy for you. Give me two clinical tests you can perform on a blister. The answer is the Nikolsky sign and the Asbo-Hansen sign. The Nikolsky sign is positive when lateral pressure on unblistered skin causes shearing of the epidermis. This can be done by twisting a pencil eraser on the skin surface. 
The Nikolsky sign is positive in pemphigus vulgaris and Steven Johnson syndrome, but is negative in bullus pemphigoid, which is a deeper process that results in more firm blistering. The Asbo-Hansen sign refers to vertical pressure being placed on a bulla, which causes lateral spread or expansion of the bulla, and this is seen with deeper blistering diseases. Next, we have the purulent lesions, which includes pustules, furuncles, and carbuncles. Pustules are smallest and are like vesicles, but they are filled with pus, which represents old white blood cells. Furuncles are commonly referred to as boils and represent a collection of pus around a hair follicle. The largest lesion is a carbuncle, which occurs when furuncles coalesce into a larger lesion. And a final random primary lesion is the wheel, also known as hives, which are plaque-like and caused by dermal edema. Individual lesions of hives typically last less than 24 hours. Therefore, if individual lesions last longer than that, you should be suspicious for an urticarial vasculitis. So let's quick summarize the primary lesions. Flat lesions are macules which are less than 1 centimeter or patches which are greater than 1 centimeter. The raised lesions without visible fluid are papules which are less than 1 centimeter, flat-topped plaques which are greater than 1 centimeter, or nodules which are rounded and also greater than 1 centimeter in diameter. Then we have fluid-filled vesicles that are less than one centimeter or bulla that are greater than one centimeter, along with pustules, furuncles, carbuncles, or wheels. Next, let's talk about the secondary lesions that can result when these primary lesions are disturbed by trauma. Excoriations refer to a linear scratch or punctate lesions that are due to scratching. Abrasions are what we think of as scrapes, which are also caused by trauma or friction. A fissure is a crack in the skin that reaches the dermis. Fissures may take various shapes and often occur on thick, dry skin such as the hands, the heels, or the corner of the mouth. An erosion occurs when part of the epidermis is lost, such as a ruptured vesicle. Erosions do not cause scars because the damage does not affect the collagen or fibroblasts that are located in the dermis. Next are ulcers, which are excavations that reach the dermis or beyond and thus heal with scarring and crusts refer to scabbing, which represents dry blood, pus, or serum. Let's go over a few other terms you should know. Scaling or flaking of lesions represents pathology in the epidermis. Scales may be fine, as in tinea versicolor, or thicker in lamellar ichthyosis. The term reticulate refers to a lacy pattern. Lichenified skin is thickened with accentuated skin lines and is seen in lichen simplex chronicus or atopic dermatitis. Why don't you take a break from dreaming about tonight's rendezvous with your virtual girlfriend and name some of the types of vascular lesions? Don't you dare say blood blister. We have telangiectasias, petechia, purpura, and ecchymosis. Telangiectasias are small, superficial, discrete blood vessels that blanch with pressure. You can see these individual vessels with your dermatoscope, and blanching them out with a glass slide is known as diascopy. Petechia are non-blanching, red-brown macules, usually less than 5 millimeters, that represent extravasated red blood cells. They often occur in dependent areas that are influenced by gravity, and more often represent a disorder in platelets such as idiopathic thrombocytopenic purpura rather than a disorder of the coagulation pathways. The larger version of petechia are purpura, 
which are typically greater than 5 millimeters in diameter. If the purpura are palpable, this typically represents inflammation and edema within the lesions. Finally, we have ecchymoses, also known as bruises, which are large confluent purpura greater than 1 centimeter. Another question you may get is, Congratulations, Einstein. You've successfully diagnosed a bruise. How about we dive a little deeper and you tell me why it turns yellow? The yellow color of a healing bruise represents the breakdown of hemoglobin into bilirubin, which gives the localized yellow color similar to that seen in jaundice. So like I mentioned earlier, using these terms to describe rashes is the foundation for communicating and creating a differential diagnosis. When I started out in derm, I found a mnemonic from the Derm Notes Pocket Guide from Barankin and Freeman really helpful. The mnemonic is less T cabs. That's L-E-S-T as in Tommy Boy, C-A-B as in Bobby Boucher, S, which stands for location, erythema, surface, type of lesion, color, arrangement, borders, and special sites. So when you describe a lesion or rash, you want to use several of these elements. So let's break each of them down. The L in less T-cabs stands for location. It is important to not only specify the areas of the body, but also to note if lesions are localized to the flexors or extensors, in sun-exposed areas, or symmetrical, lateralized, or dermatomal, as in herpes zoster. The E stands for erythema, or redness in and around the lesions. There is a spectrum of erythema that goes from faint pink to red, red-brown, violaceous, even to a near-black appearance. The S in less T-cabs describes the surface of the lesions, which may be smooth, rough, warty, crusted, or scaly, amongst other things. The T, which is the most important descriptor, is the type of lesion, which will be the primary and secondary lesions we discussed earlier, such as macules, papules, patches, or plaques. The C in less T-cabs stands for color of the lesion, which is self-explanatory, but also includes describing lesions as being hypopigmented or fully depigmented. Then the A stands for arrangement or configuration. The arrangement refers to how lesions are arranged in relationship to one another. Lesions may be grouped or generalized, unilateral or dermatomal, in a ring shape which we call annular, or linear as in bug bites that are in a grouped, linear fashion that we call breakfast, lunch, and dinner. This arrangement can give important clues for diagnosing diffuse rashes, so it's important to put patients in a gown and take a step back and look at the whole rash. I've seen dermatologists diagnose bed bugs based on the fact that the bites spared areas that were covered by the patient's nightgown. How about you evaluate the patient with your own eyes rather than relying on your nauseating history-taking skills and thousands of dollars in tests to give you the diagnosis? The next letter in the less T-cabs mnemonic is the B referring to the borders or shape of the lesions, which can be well-circumscribed versus poorly defined, circular, oval, or polycyclic where many circles merge together as an erythema gyratum repens. The final S stands for special sites, which include the mouth, genitalia, nails, hair, and scalp. So putting all of this together one more time, the mnemonic is less T-cabs, which stands for location, erythema, surface changes, type of lesion, color, arrangement, borders, and special sites. These are not in any particular order and they're not always relevant, 
but it's nice to have it in the back of your mind when you're describing a rash in a room full of attendings and residents. So just a quick example on the importance of describing rashes well. If I told you a patient had a red flaky rash on their arms and legs, it could be at least a dozen different things. If I gave a better description and told you that the patient had diffuse, well-circumscribed erythematous plaques with silvery scale on the scalp, sacrum, and extensor knees and elbows, along with onycholysis of their fingernails, it would be easy to narrow the diagnosis down to psoriasis. Dermatology is obviously a very visual field, so you want to paint a picture in the person's mind of what you're seeing, and paint that picture in your own mind as well, which will help you expand or narrow your differential diagnosis. Next, let's talk about getting a good history. When I was in medical school, I was taught the OPQRST mnemonic, which stands for onset, previous episodes, progression of disease since onset, palliating and provoking factors, in other words, what makes it better or worse, quality of symptoms such as itching, burning, or pain, radiation of symptoms, the severity of symptoms, and treatments tried. Besides getting the story behind a rash or lesion, you especially want to know about the patient's past medical history. The presence of diabetes could help you diagnose an associated disorder such as necrobiosis lipoidica, or diabetes could predispose that patient to various bacterial and fungal infections. The presence of the atopic triad is important as well. And what are the components of the atopic triad? Oh, let me guess, it's not included in the online version of your textbook. The answer is 1. Atopic dermatitis, 2. Asthma, and 3. Hay fever or allergic rhinitis. Besides the past medical history, you also want to get the patient's past surgical history, allergies, family history, and probably most importantly, the medication and social history. I can't stress enough the importance of asking about the patient's medications. You want to know everything they take from prescriptions to over-the-counters to herbals and supplements. When you're concerned for drug rashes, you also need to figure out the timing of when medications were started or if there were dosing changes or even changes between generics and brand names. There are book chapters on a variety of drug eruptions that we'll discuss in a later podcast. You look like you've wasted plenty of time at your local herb store. So tell me, which of these ridiculous, non-FDA-approved, quote, natural, organic, vegan supplements can affect the bleeding time in my surgical patients? There are many herbals that can prolong bleeding, including the five Gs, garlic, ginseng, ginger, green tea, and ginkgo. Again, that's garlic, ginseng, ginger, green tea, and ginkgo. Boppity bippity boop. Fish oil and vitamin E can also prolong bleeding. Over-the-counter medications like naproxen may cause fixed drug eruptions, which usually localize to the same location whenever a patient takes that medicine for their arthritis or whatever they're taking it for. Next, remember that the social history is a fun and crucial part to getting the story as well. A person's occupation as a nurse may predispose them to infections or lead them to wash their hands 40 times a day and wonder why they have hand eczema. This also helps you identify barriers to getting patients better, since that nurse has to wash their hands as part of their job. 
Travel to specific areas of the world may expose patients to various infections. There are actually a lot of infectious diseases to know in dermatology because most infections can cause skin changes. These infections may also be picked up locally, say for example getting bedbugs after staying at a motel. It was merely a private business meeting. It's important to know your geographic area and become familiar with endemic local critters, such as ticks carrying Lyme disease or armadillos carrying leprosy. Another aspect of the social history that's fun to ask about are people's hobbies. Maybe they love spending time with their fishies at home and pick up Mycobacterium marinum after cleaning their fish tank. Or it can be as simple as discovering that they were picking flowers without gloves and got sporotrichosis from poking their hand with a rose thorn. When concerned about allergic contact dermatitis, you want to ask about new laundry detergents, makeups, nail polish, clothing, shoes, etc., etc. And don't forget to ask about pets. You'll have patients with 10 dogs at home that all have fleas and you would never know without asking them about it. Lastly, I want to quick talk through how to do a thorough head-to-toe physical exam. There are many ways to do it, but when you're starting out, you want to pick one way and do it the same every time. That way you won't miss anything. As you go through your exam, always ask for permission to examine sensitive areas such as the butt, breasts, or groin. I personally do a head-to-toe exam starting with the patient sitting and then having them stand up at the end. So, I start with the patient's scalp and run a finger through their hair and see the entire scalp surface. I then examine and palpate the helices of the ears after looking through their scalp. If you're examining a patient that has enough sun damage to develop actinic keratoses, Be sure to palpate the ears, the face, and the arms and other areas where these tend to pop up. But it's also important to explain to your patients that you do this because you can sometimes feel these precancers before you can see them. Otherwise, it's a little creepy if you don't explain this. After examining the scalp and ears, I examine the face and make sure to look inside the patient's mouth. I then look at the arms, starting distally at the nails and working my way proximally to the shoulders and armpits. The nails can give amazing clues to diagnosing various conditions, such as pitting that suggests a diagnosis of psoriasis or alopecia areata. If you're concerned about autoimmune disease, looking at the proximal nail folds under magnification might reveal dilation and dropout of blood vessels, which can be suggestive of dermatomyositis or lupus. Then, after the arms, I examine their chest, abdomen, and back. Next, I look at their anterior legs while they're still sitting, the tops and the bottoms of their feet, and even look in between their toes. Don't get lazy and let patients keep their shoes on. Make a habit of having them take off their socks and shoes and get a good look at this area. It only takes a minute and they will appreciate how thorough you are. At this point, I have the patient stand up, I examine their butt with their permission, look at the backs of their legs, and offer to examine the groin area. If patients decline, as they often do, It's important to make sure the patient is having this area examined by their PCP or gynecologist and then document that the patient declined that part of the exam. And there you have it, a thorough history and physical for our dermatology patients. So let's quick recap. Lesions can be broken into primary or secondary lesions. Primary lesions include flat macules or patches, raised papules, plaques, and nodules, fluid-filled vesicles and bulla, or pustules, furuncles, or carbuncles, along with the isolated hive or wheel. Secondary lesions occur when the primary lesions are scratched or traumatized. These include excoriations, abrasions, fissures, superficial erosions, ulcers, scars, and crusts. The vascular lesions include telangiectasias, petechia, purpura, and ecchymoses. 
We can then put these lesions into the mnemonic less T cabs to describe rashes and lesions. Less T cabs stands for location, erythema, surface changes, type of lesion, color, arrangement, border, and special sites. Next, never forget to get a thorough history using the OPQRSTs to get the HPI and then go through the patient's past medical and surgical history, allergies, family history, medications, and social history including occupation, travel, hobbies, exposures, and pets. Then always remember to do that thorough physical exam we discussed. Alright, that does it for today's content. I'll occasionally finish the episodes with a little wisdom, so today remember, do your best to find your Gren Zone, your peace amongst the chaos and inflammation. And here's one way that I recommend. Trust your gut and follow how you feel. Listen to what truly makes you happy. In medical school, I thought I would go into a primary care specialty or cardiology, but after seeing derm patients in family practice clinic, my heart kept turning to derm. I couldn't stop thinking about it. I felt a passion to learn more of it, and it made me happy and excited at the thought of having every patient be a dermatology patient. It can be scary to pursue a competitive specialty, and I knew there was a mountain to climb, but I followed that feeling. And be sure to also follow that gut instinct in clinic as well. I've talked myself out of so many correct diagnoses by overthinking things. Trust your gut and follow your heart and it will lead you to great places. There's a great book called Blink by Malcolm Gladwell that proves this point of the importance of our gut instincts. It applies to many professions and especially dermatology. I've heard many incredible, experienced derm attendings recommend this book to me independent of one another, so I highly recommend checking it out. All right, thanks for joining today. I want to thank Dr. Sean for his help with the content and Dr. K for not only adding clinical pearls but supporting this podcast from the get-go. I also want to thank Garrett and Dan for their work with editing and post-production along with our excellent team of students and residents with Dave, Dan, and Sandra who put together an awesome study guide for each episode that's available at www.grenzonederm.com and that's with two Z's, grenzonederm.com. If you have any feedback on how we can improve our content, you can contact us through our website or via email at grenzonederm at gmail.com. Also, don't forget to follow us on social media for more helpful mnemonics and quiz questions. Thanks again for listening today. I'm Logan Kolb, and we'll see you next time here in the Gren Zone. This episode is copyright 2020 Pro Podcasting LLC, all rights reserved. The Gren Zone podcast is a service provided by Pro Podcasting LLC and is not affiliated with any other service providers.